It gladdens me to know that Odin prepares for a feast. Soon, I shall be drinking ale from curved horns. This hero that comes into Valhalla does not lament his death. I shall not enter Odin's hall with fear. There, I will wait for my sons to join me. And when they do, I will bask in their tales of triumph. The Aesir will welcome me. My death comes without apology, and I welcome the Valkyries to summon me home. What happens when an empire collapses, practically speaking, where if you're fortunate enough to have a wise figurehead in charge and all of the territories under his domain are doing well, this thing, this structure, this nation state, whatever you want to call it, this thing that's been built and is prosperous for everyone living in it, again, has collapsed. Because the old ruler died, and the line of succession wasn't exactly secure. Someone would want to come along and restore it naturally, and relatively quickly. Even if it's a short-lived empire, it's still an empire. King Canute's North Sea Empire, which encompassed England, Denmark, Norway, parts of Sweden, it lasted only for about eight years, but for that brief time, it was considered the second most powerful state in Europe after the Holy Roman Empire. Now, after Canute died, his sons attempted to restore the empire, but had nowhere near the success their father had building it. And what's going to follow will be a series of disputes of succession and false promises made that will set the stage for what I like to call the triple threat match for the fate of England. So let's set the stage by doing a little bit of the build-up before we even go over the contenders. We first have to look at the fallout from Canute's death. So Canute has died. His son Harthcanute would rule over England and Denmark, but Norway would be ruled by a man named Magnus during this time. Now, Magnus and Harthcanute would make a similar agreement to what Canute and Edmund Ironside made in End of the Age Part 1, which if you haven't listened to that episode or maybe you need to refresh, I encourage you to go back and listen to that and then come back to, to this one. 
where if either of them died, the other would succeed them to the throne. And what ends up happening is that Harthcanute would die first. He was attending a wedding. He was apparently drinking quite a lot. And at some point during the party, he fell to the ground and started to convulse. Some historians say that he had a stroke, whereas others believe that he was poisoned. The succession to the throne of Denmark fell to Magnus, but the throne of England was given to Edward the Confessor. Now, who was Edward the Confessor, I hear you asking? He was the son of Athelred the Unready, or Athelred the Unwise, the king who made a bunch of bad decisions in part one, end of the age part one, and that brought the previous Viking invasions to England. Edward spent those years, his early years, in exile in Normandy. So after Harthcanute's death, the Saxon nobles called for Edward to come back to England. Magnus would hear about this and press his claim against Edward and threatened to invade. Edward, not wanting to deal with an invasion, would appeal to Magnus by giving him hints that he would succeed him to the Saxon throne. Magnus would formally accept the proposal, but he wasn't exactly wanting to wait. And he made plans to eventually invade England. He never got the chance to, as he was dealing with rebellion in his own country, likely due to, let's just call it certain leftover tensions from when Canute was still around and Magnus's father, Olaf, were still alive. Shortly after Magnus dealt with this rebellion, he would die under unknown circumstances. Like, really unknown. There's some thought that he fell off a ship and drowned, or that he fell off his horse and died. There's no real clear record other than he died. He had no son for an heir, so succession for the thrones of Norway and Denmark fell to his uncle and the first contender in this triple threat match. His uncle was Harald Sigurdsson, better known as Harald Hardrada. So let's set up who Hardrada was. We're going to look at what he did up to the point of the beginning of the match. And his career starts really on the run. He was the half-brother to the same Olaf who was defeated by Canute the Great. Hardrada attempted to support his brother against Canute, gathering some 600 soldiers on short notice but wasn't really able to stop Canute. Hardrada's brother Olaf was killed, and Hardrada was forced to flee east to the Kievan Rus, which is part of modern-day Ukraine and Russia. He'd spend about a month healing up his wounds from battle, and he fortunately found himself in the service of the prince of the Kievan Rus, a man named Yaroslav. And Yaroslav's wife 
was a distant relative to Hardrada. And if you can prove relation to royalty, that can really help your cause during these times. And also what helped Hardrada's cause was that Yaroslav was in need of some military leaders. He had a lot of enemies that he was dealing with. So he appoints Hardrada as captain of his forces. And Hardrada proves his worth by helping him achieve several victories against the Poles, uh, a group of people known as the Chudes and is in Estonia. I hope I pronounced that right. The Chudes or Chudes. I don't, I, I'm not sure on that one. And just quite frankly, loads and loads of tribes of nomads. Hardrada would serve Yaroslav for a few years dealing with all of these challengers, offenders, rivals, whatever term you want to use. And while his skills as a military leader were being refined, if he had any hope of returning home to reclaim his family's throne, he was going to need to get some money if he had any hope of raising an army. And he wasn't going to get that in the Kievan Rus. So he had to go further south to the Byzantine Empire. And for those of you wondering what the Byzantine Empire was, it was the eastern half of the Roman Empire that survived when the old empire collapsed. The Byzantines considered themselves the continuation of that same empire, even considering themselves and sometimes calling themselves Romans. And so Hardrada arrives in the capital of Constantinople. He offers the service of himself and his warriors to the emperor. He did wish to keep his identity as Scandinavian royalty a secret, but his reputation and word of his exploits while serving in Kiev and Rus followed him, and the Byzantines, they figured out who he was. The emperor named Hardrada and his men members of the Varangian Guard. The Varangian Guards similar to the Praetorians of old Rome, were the elite bodyguards of the emperor. They were their own kind of small army. Now, interestingly, unlike the Praetorians, the Varangians were not primarily Roman Byzantines, but were made up of a lot of Northern Europeans, a lot of Norse Vikings. And if that doesn't speak to how formidable the Vikings were thought of during this time in history, that an emperor ruling at the meeting point of Europe and Asia wanted an elite bodyguard force of these people rather than his own, I'm just saying. Hardrada was not a guy who was going to be content to just stand in the throne room all day he was going to get bored real quick, and he wasn't exactly going to make the money that he wanted to eventually go back home. So he convinces the emperor that the best way for him to protect him was not in the palace, but on the front lines against his enemies. And what could be more fitting, a first task for Hardrada, being a Viking, a sea raider himself, than to start by eliminating Arab pirates in the Mediterranean Sea. According to the sagas, Hardrada captured no less than 80 pirate strongholds. 
And from what I was trying to find, apparently historians see no reason to dispute this number. That's 80 strongholds. That's 80 groups of fortified people. Think about that. This means it was a common thing at this time for the emperor to learn of a town or a castle being run by pirates or bandits or some minor rebel leader causing trouble, making headaches. And who better to send to take care of it than Hardrada? Kind of a fight fire with fire sort of thing. His dependability dealing with all of these pirates has the emperor beginning to trust him with some more important tasks like invasion. The first invasion that Hardrada will lead for the Byzantine emperor will be to the island of Sicily to remove Muslim Saracens. Islam has been slowly building and on the rise and has made its way into parts of Europe since the early 700s. It was a challenge that Christian Europe was beginning to take notice that they needed to deal with. So Hardrada leads a force sailing west to Sicily to reclaim it for Christendom. It seemed like a bit of luck would accompany Hardrada when he got there. As he met a group of Normans who were also fighting the Muslims. Remember, the Normans are sort of the proto-French Vikings. They're like kind of the cousins to someone like Hardrada. With their help... Hardrada would succeed in defeating the Saracens from four major towns in Sicily. But that victory would be short-lived because after getting the Muslims out of Sicily, the Normans would turn around and turn on Hardrada. He wouldn't have time to try to fight back against the Normans for very long as he received a message that he had to go back to Constantinople by the Emperor for a new assignment. The image that kind of comes to my mind's eye is that Hardrada probably in a bit of a mood after being called back and marching into the Emperor's throne room saying how something like, if you would have just given me more time, I could have dealt with the Normans as well and Sicily would be under Byzantine control. To the Emperor, he may have felt that as long as Sicily was at least out of Saracen control, out of Muslim control, that the expedition there was victory enough. It's kind of a Christian mission for the emperor, at least. And he has another one for Hardrada. In fact, he has several. First, he's sent to Jerusalem to protect Christian pilgrims and to allow the reconstruction of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre which was damaged again in part due to some of these Saracens. Now protecting the site and the roads from the bandits and the Saracens was basically what he was doing this whole time. After the construction was complete, the Byzantine Emperor sent Hardrada to lead a campaign against Bulgaria. That campaign was so successful, he wasn't even gone for a year. Hardrada after finishing that task, was quickly called back to Constantinople, where he received a whole bunch of honors from the emperor, 
there were several little campaigns like this that Hardrada was put to the task to, similar to how uh, he served Yaroslav in Kievan Rus. Up to this point, he had successfully taken part in 18 major battles under the Emperor. If you had the minor battles, it was well over a hundred. So Hardrada's doing pretty well at this point. He's winning. A lot. Receiving titles, gaining a little bit of wealth, and the Emperor genuinely likes him. Now this is the part where if this were a movie, things turn sour. Not long after receiving all of those honors, the Emperor would die. And the new Emperor and his Empress were not overly fond of Hardrada. But the sources aren't clear as to the reasoning. Of course, we have our theories. One theory is that Hardrada was accused of quote-unquote defiling a niece or granddaughter of the Empress. Another theory is that Hardrada requested to marry that same woman. Another theory is that Hardrada murdered some imperial official. The last one that I could find is that the new emperor feared Hardrada due to his loyalty to the previous emperor. My personal theory is actually kind of a combination of these. It could have been one of those forbidden love situations where Hardrada and the niece of the Empress legitimately liked each other. But the Emperor, the new Emperor, saw that potential marriage as a threat to his own position and to any heirs the Emperor might have. And so it's probably for these reasons it's as well that Hardrada was arrested and scheduled to be executed. What happens next in my opinion, speaks to how well Hardrada was liked by the Byzantines. A revolt breaks out by the Varangian Guard. Now, while some of the Varangians still guarded the Emperor, enough were in support of Hardrada, and someone let him out. If this were in a TV series, this would probably be at the behest of Hardrada's love interest. But the point is, Hardrada escapes. And he leaves. But before he leaves, he takes what's owed to him. He takes a very large sum of wealth. And it's now time for him to return home and reclaim Norway. The exact amount of wealth and gold he took with him on his return journey isn't precisely known, but it was enough to note that, quote, his ship was unbalanced by its heavy load of gold, end quote. That'd be quite the sight, a lopsided Viking ship sailing into port. It pulls up and just... I'm, I'm picturing loads of chests and piles of gold just, like, filling up the deck. 
So when Hardrada returns to Norway, this makes him a force to be reckoned with. He's returned from his journeys. He's a seasoned military leader, and his men are seasoned fighters. The current king of Norway, Magnus, Hardrada's nephew, whether willingly or unwillingly, more likely unwillingly, but he wasn't ex exactly in a position to do anything about it, especially since Magnus had no heirs, he names his uncle heir to the throne. Magnus did, however, appoint a man named Svein Estridsson to be king of Denmark after his death. So fast forward back to the year 1048 when Magnus mysteriously died, whether it was off the ship or falling off a horse, doesn't matter. Hardrada is named king of Norway and now Svein is king of Denmark. Hardrada quickly declares his intent to gather an army and move into Denmark. Hardrada wished to restore the North Sea Empire originally made by King Canute. While he couldn't conquer Denmark, not for lack of trying, he did force an unconditional peace with King Svein. With his home base now secure from any major threat, he was now able to set his eyes on the real prize, England. By now, Edward the Confessor is king, but Hardrada is pressing his claim to Edward's throne based on the agreement between the previous king, Harthcanute, and Hardrada's nephew, Magnus, whom Hardrada has just now succeeded. Edward hints to Hardrada that he will inherit the Saxon throne after his death, but just like he did to Magnus, he never explicitly said anything concrete. Now, after King Edward finally dies, it's time for succession to the throne. And his brother-in-law, Harold Godwinson, takes the throne, not Hardrada. So a promise, or perceived promise, a dispute of succession, causes now Hardrada's plans to invade England. And so we now have our first contestant in the triple threat match for England, King Harald Hardrada of Norway. So that's sort of a quick glance at who Harald Hardrada was, our contender from Scandinavia. Contestant number two is Harold Godwinson. Born in Wessex and the son of the most powerful Earl in England, man named Godwin. Godwin. So we've got Godwin, Harold Godwinson, son of God... Okay, you get it. Harold's not the son of the king. King Edward, Edward the Confessor, did not have any children. King Edward was married, however, to a woman named Edith, who was the sister of Harold. So he's the brother-in-law to the king. And to continue with the little bits of family history here, Harold also had five other brothers. Svein, 
Tostig, Girth, Leofrin, and Wolfnoth. Those last two names especially got interesting to pronounce, and I have no idea if I even said them right. <laughs> so, most importantly, the first two brothers play a big part in Harold's story. First, let's look at Svein, the oldest brother. Not the same Svein as Svein Forkbeard, just to keep it straight for the listeners, Svein Godwinson. This guy, reading about him, he seemed more like your military kind of guy, not as not as much the political type of person. He's a bit more brash and cantankerous. Uh, definitely, again, less political than his brother Harold. But Svein was the oldest. And this would mean he would have inherited Godwin's most valuable pieces of land and title. Would have. Svein makes a couple of key mistakes in his career. The first seems like a good idea. He takes part in a Welsh civil war. You know, to end this conflict and try to put someone in charge who might be a bit more cooperative with Wessex. He goes over, he fights for a while, he has victory. He comes home triumphant. Seems all good. And after returning, I don't know if it's the sense of victory just goes to his head or what, but for whatever reason, Svein abducts the abbess of Leominster. Now an abbess, for those who don't know, is the lead nun, the mother superior. Why did he abduct her? The only thing we can say for certain is that he intended to marry her to gain control of the Leominster estate. This did not sit well with King Edward, who not only refused this marriage, he had Svein exiled. He was kicked out of England. Svein would attempt on numerous occasions to return to England, but they all proved to be for naught. So eventually, Svein decides the only thing left for him to do is just to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where he would remain until he died. So now with Svein gone, this moves Harold up in the line of succession. Harold is first made the Earl of East Anglia. This is both a promotion and a strategic position for King Edward. He's moved up the ladder, but he's now also in charge of guarding the East Coast from potential Viking and Danish attacks. You remember that King Edward had been hinting to King Magnus, who was king of Norway at that time, that Magnus might inherit the throne. This may have stalled the attacks from Magnus. We know that Magnus eventually wanted to invade, but he had his own problems, so maybe the hints from Edward might have helped to stall this. This would work in Harold's favor because he had to go west and clean up the Welsh Civil War mess that his brother Svein started. 
To Svein's credit, he did help to stop the civil war in Wales. But now the Welsh were entirely united for the first time under one king, a man named Gruffydd, who began causing problems for the Saxons in western England, starting with the burning of the town of Hereford. If, I'm if my pronunciation of any of these towns in Britain is incorrect, I apologize. I am just a Midwestern American. King Edward obviously didn't want this upstart Welsh king running roughshod on his western border, and he put Harold in charge of stopping him. Griffith would prove to be a challenge for Harold. In the course of this early part of the conflict with the Saxons, Griffith managed to seize southern territory in England and defeated the Saxons at Glasbury proved himself a capable king of the Welsh. And so this little power play gave Griffith the gumption to make a peace agreement with King Edward to be recognized as the King of Wales. The agreement was made, but it would be short-lived, as this was not going to sit well with Harold. In 1063, he proposes a surprise attack to King Edward against Griffith, obviously wanting to regain the lost territory and regain probably that sense of honor for the Saxons since this upstart Welsh king just came and kind of gave them a really hard punch in the nose, so to speak, took their lunch money for a sec. Harold proposes that he and his brother Tostig lead two separate armies into Wales. Tostig would take an army into northern Wales while Harold would take one into the south. Their plan was to trap King Gruffydd at a place called Rudlin. Unfortunately, Gruffydd was warned in time and managed to escape Rudlin, causing a bit of a headache for Harold and his brother Tostig. But... They were committed, and they persisted in this chase, and managed to corner Griffith in a place called Snowdonia, which I'd just like to say that that sounds like a place in a cheap fantasy novel. No offense to anyone who lives there, that's just the thought that comes to my mind. Griffith has nowhere to go now. He's fallen back. He's cornered. Harold and Tostig both have their armies in such a way that Griffith can't get out. And now, Griffith would die at the hands of his own men. Because apparently, you can't just unite a country that quickly, especially after a civil war, and not expect to make enemies on your own turf. Some old resentments from both sides might still linger. Griffith's head would be sent to Harold. The problem with the Welsh was now over. And now Harold and his brother Tostig, you could say at this point, were now proven military commanders and they began to reap the benefits. 
Costig in particular was given the territory of Northumbria. In 1065, Tostig enforced a doubling of taxation, and it was apparently of such harshness that it threatened to bring England into its own civil war. The Northumbrian locals and peasants rebelled against Tostig. This forced Harold to come in and deal with this problem. Harold did not want to have to fight against his brother, but he had to. He removed Tostig from Northumbria. And as thanks, the Northumbrians were loyal to Harold, and Harold had to put someone else in charge of governing Northumbria. So while he increased his influence, he was now estranged from his brother who has just lost his lands and titles and of course is going to want them back because anybody who gets a little bit of a taste of power doesn't want to lose it and is willing to do things that might be considered distasteful maybe if you're a Saxon Tostig will go east and seek the help of the new king of Norway at this time, Hardrada. The following year in 1066, King Edward would pass away without an heir. And the Witten, a council of Saxon nobles, elects Harold Godwinson to be their new king. This sounds fine and good, just have to deal with Hardrada and your estranged brother Tostig. But there's another problem. And I need to rewind a couple years to explain this one. So in 1064, Harold had left England to bargain for the release of some of his family members who had become prisoners in Hungary. Along the way, he became shipwrecked in northern France, a region called Pontou. And he was captured by the Count of Pontou, a man named Guy. He was held prisoner in, in Guy's castle of Boran. And after a couple months, he receives help and his freedom from an unexpected source. Harold would be released from Guy's castle at the behest of basically Guy's paymaster, the ruler of Normandy. And Harold, very thankful for being let out, returned the favor by helping the Lord of Normandy win a battle in Brittany. It's a region in western France. Now, here's where things get interesting. According to the Bayou Tapestry, which is a Norman source, and what is the Bayou Tapestry? It's a piece of fabric that tells a particular section of Norman history. Firstly, Harold was knighted in Normandy. It's pretty nice, right? But something else happens here that is a lot more important for our history lesson here. Harold was made aware that the Lord of Normandy was family to King Edward on his mother's side 
and that he had a claim to the crown, and supposedly King Edward had agreed to this claim. So as thanks for being freed, Harold had sworn an oath to support this claim. Swore an oath that the Lord of Normandy would be the next king of England. So now we come back to where we currently are in our timeline, 1066. Harold Godwinson is king. He's contestant number two, and thus has broken this oath, which brings in contestant number three. The man he broke this oath to was William II of Normandy, or as history will better remember him, William the Conqueror. Before he became known as the Conqueror, William of Normandy was originally known as, especially by his opponents, as William the Bastard. His father, Robert I, was a man who got around, he had several mistresses, and he also had little interest in marrying any of them. And fortunately for William in our story, he happened to be the only male to come from any of Robert's mistresses. So obviously this makes him the heir to the Dukedom of Normandy. And he would become the Duke at a very early age. His father Robert, in 1035, would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. After he spends his time there, he starts to make the return journey home, but shortly after starting the return journey, he'd fall ill. Of what sort of illness, we're not sure, but he dies. Word gets back to Normandy, and William is the new Duke, at the young age of seven. This creates all kinds of instability in Normandy as William's relatives and other Norman nobles are fighting for control of William. Several would-be guardians ended up being killed in all this political backstabbing. William would have two notable guardians in this time. First, a relative of his, Osborne the Steward, as he would be remembered, would be William's guardian for about six years. It's not a bad job. Protecting him and serving as kind of a father figure. He protected William from other members of the family who were not only trying to kidnap William for control, but some of them were just trying to outright have William killed. Osborne would serve as guardian until he meets his end in 1041, when one night, reading a book in William's bedroom with William asleep, an assassin had made his way into the bedroom. Osborne would hold off this assassin long enough for help to arrive, but not before his throat was cut. 
to go down fighting like that, if that's not devotion to the protection of a child who's your own blood, I don't know what is. William's guardian after Osborne would be the last guardian he would need until he was old enough to just need the kind of typical protection you'd expect of medieval royalty. This would come from an uncle on William's mother's side, a man named Walter of Falaye. The kidnapping and assassination attempts, especially looking at what happened to Osborne, became apparently too frequent. Enough to the point that Walter decides that at times, William's just going to have to hide in the houses of the peasantry instead of in a palace or a castle. One can imagine that having to live with the common folk, William would develop a certain appreciation for his subjects since they're not only helping to protect him, but sort of helping to raise him and he would learn some of the things that are important to the peasantry. By the time he's 19, William finally takes part in his first large battle, the Battle of Valadun, where his cousin, Guy of Burgundy, led a rebellion against William. Details about this battle are limited, but that seems to be kind of common for the medieval era. But what we do know is that Guy had the numerically superior force of 25,000 to William's 10,000. Guy's force, however, lacked the coordination of William's royal army. It was a force that was assembled pretty new, whereas the royal army of Normandy had had years of training, drilling, discipline instilled in them versus a ragtag group that just kind of springs up. And after losing several skirmishes and a portion of the rebel force defecting and joining William's side, the rebels were quickly defeated. And William pursues Guy to the castle of Brionne. And he's going to get some help in pursuing his cousin from King Henry I of France. Even with the King of France's help, it's going to be a three-year effort before they succeed in exiling Guy. But after his cousin is pushed out of the way, William's status in Normandy was now secure and his influence was beginning to grow. His next challenge came from a guy named Geoffrey Martel. Martel was the count of the region of Anjou. It's uh, roughly in middle to northern France. And Martel decides to take the county of Maine, which shares a border with Normandy on the southern side. Martel starts moving into key fortresses along the border, and this obviously becomes a bit of a threat to William. William lets the king of France know what's up, and King Henry and William would work together again and drive Martel out of Maine. This allows William to occupy portions of the territory of Maine, expanding Normandy's power. Over the course of, a co of these couple of years of 
William moving into Maine, King Henry took notice of what was going on and decides to switch sides and give his support to Geoffrey Martel. Henry likely did this because he felt that Normandy was no longer going to rely on the support of France. And Henry wanted to maintain France's dominance over Normandy. Because, you have to think, ever since Normandy was founded by Rollo, it was only ever semi-autonomous. The ruler, the Duke of Normandy, was just that, a Duke, was not a king. And the Duke of Normandy was supposed to pledge fealty to the King of France. But with this increase of territory and status for William, King Henry felt that this was becoming a bit of a problem and a threat. Because how long would it take before he decides to just upgrade that title from Duke to King? That's the fear. So King Henry decides to support Norman rebels against William. And he does this by leading a double invasion of Normandy. He takes his brother Odo with him, leading two separate forces. Henry's force would attack from the east, and Odo would move in from the northeast. But William's not alone in this. He's built up a lot of support. Several barons were very loyal to him, and gathered enough troops of their own to face Odo and allow William to deal with the French king. This would be the 1054 Battle of Mortimer. And surprisingly, just like the rebel force that William faced at the Battle of Valadun, the French forces were less organized than the Normans. And what happens is that the force under Odo decides to break from the typical invasion to just move into the town of Mortimer to rape and pillage. Odo occupies the town and he and his men begin to enjoy themselves. William gets word of this and orders his barons to move at night and block the exits of Mortimer for the French, and just before sunup, begin burning the buildings. Once the fires start, Odo and his men attempt to flee, but were blocked by the Norman forces who did not take too kindly to the treatment of their people. It was a slaughter for Odo's forces. Supposedly, while William's force was fighting King Henry, Henry had a view from the top of a hill called Bassenburg, where he was apparently able to see everything going on, not just with his own force fighting William, but what was going on with his brother Odo. And after seeing what happened to Odo's force, Henry withdrew in quote-unquote dismay. The aftermath of Mortimer saw the capture of Count Guy of Pontou. That name should sound familiar to you. King Henry would try one more time to invade Normandy in 1057, the Battle of Varaville. 
Henry had begun marching his force until he came across a ford near the River Deves. He starts to cross his army, but he only gets about half of it over before the tide comes in, leaving them split. Henry's with the force that managed to cross. William takes advantage of this and attacks the force that has not yet crossed. The battle was short, as William easily took out the French forces without their king. This would be the last time that King Henry would attempt to invade Normandy. Three years later, in 1060, both King Henry and Count Geoffrey Martel, this little alliance against William, they would both die. And this cements the shift in power to William, who took full control of the region of Maine. And with King Henry dead, the French crown would pass to his seven-year-old son. So no trouble was going to come from Normandy from the French for quite a while. With these threats gone, William wants to take advantage of this time to grow Normandy. And after taking the region of Maine, he would set his sights on invading Brittany, a region in western France. But the real prize lay across the channel in England. William had been in contact with England's king, King Edward, and he had been given the hint that he would be named heir to the throne. He probably looked at it as a thank you for Normandy serving as refuge for Edward while he was in exile in his youth. And then in 1064, Count Guy of Pontou, who now serves William at this time, has captured a Saxon noble who had been blown off course and landed on his shore. William arrives to see this noble, and it's Harold Godwinson, the most powerful earl in England, and he orders Guy to release him. As a thank you, Harold would aid William in the invasion of Brittany, bringing it under Norman control. Now, according to Norman sources, after the invasion of Brittany, Harold had pledged to support William's claim to the throne after King Edward's death. This is according to the Bayou Tapestry. It's a large piece of embroidered cloth that depicts William the Conqueror's history, and in this, it shows that Harold had supposedly sworn this support on sacred Christian relics. This is in 1064. Then we move two years up into 1066. King Edward falls into a coma, and he doesn't specify his preference of a successor. The Witten assembles and names Harold Godwinson as a new king. Well, why? Supposedly, and this is according to another kind of ambiguous and possibly biased source, but then again, you could argue that the Bayou Tapestry, which is a Norman source, is biased. That's the thing about all sources. All sources are probably a bit biased, you know, that whole history's written by the winner sort of thing. But this source, the Vita Eduardi Regis, it's a Latin 
title, and I probably butchered that pronunciation, and of course it's written by an anonymous author. But the point being, it claims that Edward had regained consciousness just long enough to tell his soon-to-be widow that the kingdom needs to be in Harold Godwinson's protection, and that Harold needs to be king. Whichever source you choose to believe, the Vita Eduardi Regis, the Bayou Tapestry, whichever one, what's certain is that a conflict is about to take place now, at this point in our story. Because Harold accepts the crown, William and the Normans hear about this and raise all kinds of hell that he has broken a sacred oath to William because he supposedly said that William was going to be king. And then we can't forget about Harald Hardrada in Norway, who's pushing his claim to the throne based on agreements with previous kings that King Edward was supposedly going to uphold. So now the stage is set. In the seat of England, we have King Harold Godwinson representing the Saxons. From Norway, we have King Harald Hardrada representing the Norse Scandinavians. And from Normandy, we have Duke William representing the Normans, our sort of hybrid of Vikings and French. And now the question comes, is who is going to win this triple threat match? Now it's time for the contestants to weigh in. The size of all three respective armies, I base on what the sources put them at at the time of the two major battles that take place. So first up, we have King Hardrada, who begins making his preparations in March of 1066, assembling his troops, he's building his fleet, he has his own flagship built to lead his fleet, kind of a sign of inspiration. He calls his ship the Ormen. This roughly just translates to serpent, but it's very fitting for a Norse ship. We typically remember the Viking ships as having some sort of dragon head at the front. By September of that year, Hardrada was about as ready as he was going to get from all the resources that he could pull together from Norway, and he would set out. He would make a short stop at the island of Orkney to collect some additional troops. And when he arrives at the Northumbrian coastal town of Teenmouth, Tynemouth, I'm, as usual, not good with the pronunciation of some of these places, where he would link up with Tostig at this Northumbrian coastal town. The fleet that he had assembled was a little over 300 ships, and his army was 15,000 strong. Meanwhile, in Normandy, William had put out a call to arms to invade England, and he begins assembling his fleet at Dives-sur-Mer. It's a region in northwestern France. 
initially, he doesn't get a lot of support. Other lords aren't exactly flocking to his cause to fight over a foreign throne, especially one across the English Channel. It wasn't until he began declaring that Harold Godwinson had broken a sacred oath that was sworn on holy relics, and word of this oath-breaking had reached the Pope, who declared that William was the rightful heir to the throne of England. It was only after all of that that William finally begins to receive not just support, but a large amount of support. Many nobles and lords begin flocking to his cause. Like Hardrada, William would try to set out for England sometime in September, and the reported fleet, it, this may be a little exaggerated, but the sources we have are kind of limited. Not necessarily all of these would have been necessarily troop carriers, but the number of ships that William supposedly brings is 700, with a fighting force of 12 to 13,000. He's probably bringing not just the troops, but the supplies. And 12 to 13 is still nothing to sneeze at. King Harold, for obvious reasons, has to assemble as large an army as he can to defend England. He also has an important decision to make. Because he's got his estranged brother, who went off to Scandinavia to get help, to come back and try to take his earldom, and at the same time, he hears about what's going on in mainland Europe with William, and he has to decide where to make his defense. And he initially chooses to camp his army in the south and wait for the Normans, wait for William, to arrive. And this probably would have been the right call were it not for a little bit of luck or fate. As when William set sail, or I should say attempted to set sail, he didn't get very far and had to return to port. This little delay due to weather made it so that he was not able to get to England when he initially plans. So Harold's forces are sitting down on the southern English coast, waiting and waiting and waiting for the Normans to arrive. And nothing comes. So on September 8th, with no sign of Normandy's arrival, Harold returns his army to London. When he arrives in the city, he gets word that King Hardrada has landed in the north. Hardrada and Tostig got to work right away and began plundering the coast. They made their way to the village of Fulford, where they would face the earl that had replaced Tostig as the governor of Northumbria, a man named Morcar. Morcar and his forces, in attempting to face Hardrada's, initially it seems like a good idea, but it turns out to be a mistake. They spread themselves out along the nearby river and marsh to secure their flanks. 
But what they end up doing is that there's a nearby hill that they don't occupy, and they give it to Hardrada, who now has the high ground and the ability to survey the whole battlefield. And Morkar's forces would strike first at Hardrada's, pushing them into the marsh. Hardrada had counted on this. He had arranged his forces into three separate columns, with his weakest troops in one column, and he positioned that column in such a way that it was awfully tempting for Morkar to attack that column. So when the Saxons are facing them, they're pushing them, they're getting all the success, they're over-eager, you know, they're pushing them into the marsh. They get a little excited. They've used up a lot of their energy thinking this is going to be a quick victory. But once Hardrada's more seasoned troops join the fray, the now tired Saxons have to retreat. Morcar falls back to York, and after realizing that he's trapped, he agrees to give the town up as long as Hardrada and Tostig didn't loot it. Tostig was very amenable to this deal because York was going to be the town that he wanted to govern from once he got his earldom back. Hardrada agreed to this only if hostages would be given in order to ensure the transition. The agreement was made, and Hardrada moves his forces seven miles from York, and he waits for the hostages to arrive at Stamford Bridge. Meanwhile, King Harold, after hearing about what's happened, that Hardrada has landed, and of this skirmish near York, he reassembles his army, quickly, I might add, and makes a fast march north to face him. The distance he has to cover is 185 miles. Harold's army arrives at Stamford Bridge in just four days. That's fast marching at a pace, mind you, of a little more than 46 miles a day. Imagine being the typical foot soldier in this army, wearing chain mail and leather, maybe some plated pieces. You've got your weapons, your shield, your spear, your sword, maybe you're part of the supply train, you're carrying uh, foods and boxes of uh, bandages for the wounded. 15,000 foot soldiers. 2,000 cavalry. Harold has assembled an army of 17,000 strong. And he's moving north. On September 25th, Hardrada and Tostig, waiting for the hostages to arrive, leave the bulk of their forces at their camp, taking only lightly armored soldiers across Stamford Bridge, thinking they're about to receive some hostages. What they were not expecting was King Harold and almost the entire Saxon army. Realizing they are in a dire situation. It's kind of like being caught with your pants down. 
Hardrada has to quickly fall back to his camp to regroup with the rest of his army. And Stamford Bridge is a narrow crossing, and it took some time to get his troops across. But the problem with that is the Saxons would be able to quickly catch up to them, and they needed time to get back to their camp if they had any hope of fighting back against Harold's forces. And here is where one of history's great last stands takes place. Just to give a little bit of comparison, we remember the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae standing against easily over 100,000 Persians. Kind of lopsided odds, but the 300 Spartans made an impressionable stand. But let's reduce that even further. How about just one man standing against a whole army? But maybe he's just a little bit more than a man. And he might also be the last of a dying breed. The charging Saxon army crashed into the small Norse camp on the west side of the river, cutting the unprepared Norsemen to shreds. Those who weren't immediately cut down attempted to flee across Stamford Bridge and join up with the rest of their allies on the east bank in order to regroup. With all of the Norse warriors on the west bank either slaughtered or running for their lives, the Saxon forces prepared to charge over the river. However, victory would not come so easily for the Saxon army. Standing astride the bridge was one man, a giant Viking berserker, a warrior who could enter a trance-like fury, believing he is channeling the strength of a wolf or a bear. This berserker silently surveyed the Saxon army firmly clutching a massive, double-bladed great axe in his weathered, calloused hands. A lone Viking hero, granted permission by his king to die honorably in combat, tasked with defending the narrow bridge and buying time for his brethren to reorganize. The full might of the Anglo-Saxon army let out their battle cry and charged the bridge, determined to extricate this colossal beast from his post with the sheer weight of their numbers. But the narrow walkway above the raging waters of the River Derwent was only wide enough for four men to stand abreast, and its guardian was unwavering in his resolve. The war songs and chants of ancient heroes resounded in his ears. The berserker let loose a war cry of his own, so fierce, that for at least a moment it caused the whole Saxon army to pause. His savage strikes felled even the bravest warriors in a single blow, while any attacks that penetrated his agile defenses failed to significantly wound him or even penetrate his battle-hardened hide. The terrible blows that rained upon his chest and arms failed to elicit even the slightest wince of pain. It seemed as if he could single-handedly take on the whole Saxon army. But it was not meant to be. A Saxon warrior snuck into a small boat upstream and rowed under the bridge beneath the berserker and thrust a spear into the brave Norseman. 
as he dropped to his knees dying. More than forty Saxons lay dead before him. Though his name was not recorded, history does remember the Berserker of Stamford Bridge. This delay had allowed the bulk of the Norse army to form a shield wall to face the English attack. Harold's army had poured across the bridge, forming a line just short of the Norse army. They locked their own shields and charged. The battle went far beyond the bridge itself, and it raged on for hours. However, Hardrada's decision to take his men unarmored, to go wait for what he thought were hostages, is going to put him at a distinct disadvantage. Eventually, the Norse army begins to fragment and fracture. They didn't have time to rearmor themselves to get ready. This allows the English troops to force their way in and break up the Norse shield wall. It's amazing how one little error in judgment can cause a change of not just a battle, but the trajectory of a culture. You don't realize, probably, this is the thought coming to my mind, you probably don't realize that when you're in this moment, it's going to change things, not just there, but at home. That your people are about to see the end of their golden age. And I wonder if these thoughts or something similar occurred to Hardrada or not, when the battle turned not just to a defeat, but to a slaughter. Completely outflanked, Hardrada was killed with an arrow to his windpipe, and Tostig was cut down. The Norse army disintegrated, and it was virtually annihilated. In the later stages of the battle, the Norse were reinforced by the troops who had been guarding their ships, and their counterattack briefly stopped the English advance, but it was soon overwhelmed. This counterattack is probably what spared any of them. According to the Chronicles, many of the Norse warriors drowned attempting to cross the rivers as they retreated back to where their boats were anchored. And so many died in this small area of the field near Stamford Bridge that the field itself was said to have still been whitened with bleached bones 50 years after the battle. King Harold makes peace with the remaining Norse, allowing them to leave only after they've all sworn to never again invade England. The remaining Norse troops accept these terms and go back to their ships. Their losses were such that of the 300 ships that Hardrada brought to invade England, only 24 were needed for the survivors to go back to Norway. Never again would a major Norse army threaten England.
and then there were two. King Hardrada was eliminated from this contest, leaving King Harold the winner. The largely Scandinavian power was gone, but Harold's victory would be short-lived. Just eight days later, Duke William of Normandy landed in southern England. King Harold's army didn't have exactly a lot of time to rest and had to make the force march back south to meet the Norman army. William had his forces quickly build a wooden fortress near the town of Hastings. Here would be where they would conduct all of their operations. It would be from here that he had the Normans raid the surrounding countryside, kind of similar to what Hardrada had previously done a couple weeks earlier. William's force, that 13,000 strong I mentioned earlier, about 10,000 of them were, you know, your foot soldiers, archers, and crossbowmen, while the remaining two to 3,000 were cavalry. Harold's forces, after fighting with Hardrada, had been brought down from his 17,000 strong to about 13,000, making this next face-off, at least as far as numbers go, an even contest. And William had gotten word that Harold was quickly approaching, and so he starts setting up his defenses in case Harold would try to surprise him with an attack at night. Instead, what Harold does is he sets up a really dense formation at the top of a hill overlooking Hastings, pinning William in place, making it so that if William tries to go somewhere, Harold can quickly intercept him. Harold has the high ground. So this is an interesting standoff we got here. We have William's force, the Normans. They're fresh, but they have the tactical disadvantage versus Harold's force with the tactical advantage, but they're exhausted. They just fought a major battle a little over a week ago and then quickly marched back. So the Battle of Hastings begins. William attempts to assault the hill. He first has his archers launch a volley up at the Saxons. But most of the arrows either hit the shields at the top or they just arced way over. It's kind of hard to do that when, you know, you're at the bottom of a hill trying to hit people at the top with shields. William tries his infantry and his cavalry, but they were unable to push through. And the Normans eventually started to retreat. And what happens next, to me anyway, is... Total sheer luck. For whatever reason, the Saxons hear that Duke William has supposedly been killed in this first part of the battle, and that that's the reason for the retreat. And some of the Normans even heard this and they believed it themselves. So they're all fleeing. And some of the Saxons, without orders from Harold, abandoned the top of the hill to chase down the fleeing Normans. William, seeing what's going on in an attempt to salvage the situation, he 
hops on his horse, he takes his helmet off, and he starts yelling at all of his men, basically saying, Hey, hey, I'm, I'm not dead. I'm not dead. We're still in this. The fight's not over. And upon seeing William still alive, the Normans turned around and began to cut down the Saxons that left the top of the hill. Some of the Saxons had managed to escape the Normans and retreat back to the top of the hill, and the stalemate continued. But an idea formed in William's mind. Many of the Saxons broke rank and chased when they thought that he was dead. Now, he couldn't pull that same trick again. But what if he at least feigned a retreat? He has his forces give a believable hard push into the hill. And after an allotted time, maybe it's after an hour or two, William calls for the quote-unquote retreat. He signals his troops to fall back. Meanwhile, King Harold, up at the top of the hill, he falls for it. He signals his troops to pursue, and he even leads them in this chase. And as they charge down the hill, yeah, they might have gotten a few of the Norman forces that were straggling behind. They come up and find the rest of the Norman force lying in wait. The details of this part of the battle are pretty scarce, but at some point in the fighting, Harold took an arrow to the eye, causing him to fall off his horse and die. So similar to the Scandinavian king he just took out a little over a week ago, who took an arrow to the throat, King Harold Godwinson dies from an arrow as well. The Saxon army has lost. England continues to try to resist the Norman invasion after Hastings, but they never found themselves in a position where they had a chance to hold them off like Harold did. On Christmas Day 1066, William was crowned King of England, and he receives the title The Conqueror. And the territories that were the kingdoms of Wessex, Essex, East Anglia, and Northumbria became just that, territories. England was no longer a land of divided factions, but a singular entity. The Viking Age is over. Historians differ on what was the official last battle of the Viking Age, whether it was Stamford Bridge or Hastings. Now, if with Hastings, in one sense, you could say that the Vikings never lost after the quote-unquote Viking Age. If we stop and remember that William the Conqueror is descended from Rollo, the great Viking raider who founded Normandy, and he blended that Viking toughness with Christianity. It's, he put more of the Viking mindset, but left out the symbolism and the religion. So that part of 
the Norse culture, the Viking culture, the Scandinavian culture, it blended in with the rest of Europe and survived. So in that sense, the Vikings never lost. But that's probably not what we're talking about when we're saying the Viking Age ended. My thought, and again, I'm not a historian, I'm just an enthusiast, what we tend to think of as Vikings, the warriors predominantly from Scandinavia, the type of armor they wore, the style of ships complete with carved dragon heads carved into the bow, so on and so forth. That version that we think of as Vikings ended at Stamford Bridge. As great a leader as Harald Hardrada was, and he has a great backstory, his adventures in the Kievan Rus and the Byzantine Empire, and how he retook the throne of Norway. Symbolically, I feel like the last heroic moment that the Vikings had was actually with that unnamed berserker holding the bridge. So now we've come to the end of the age, as I've been titling this. This coverage I've done of the Viking Age, this time period of Norse and Scandinavian culture, some of the figures present within. And I know that there's plenty of figures that I have not covered, like the first king of Norway, the first true king of Norway, King Harald Finehair. I've not looked at Eric the Red and his children, Leif Eriksson or Freydis. There's still stuff that I can come back to at a later date, but I wanted to cover the big portions of the Viking Age. So now, what's the legacy of the Norse? No doubt, no denying, there's a high amount of violence associated with them. I mean, for crying out loud, look at all the places they hit on all those raids. Those raids that started off as small and eventually grew into just full-on invasions. But as I try to do when looking at these warrior cultures, as I like to call them, which that's, that's what they are, what mark have they left? What cultural impact have they left us? What lessons for living life can we learn from them? Well, here's one, for example. Wednesday, right? Bet you didn't think of that one. Wednesday, we get Wednesday from them, sort of. As far back as during the Roman Empire, back when the Romans still believed in their pantheon of gods, when the local Romans would talk to those early Germanic peoples across the, I believe it was the Rhine River, the Germanic peoples worshipped their lead god called Woden, which was just a precursor god that just evolved into Odin. And the Romans, upon hearing all these descriptions of Woden, just thought he was the god Mercury that they worshipped. And so the Romans made Wednesday, or Woden's Day, or Odin's Day. So there's that for you. Here's another thing. Do you have a comb? 
though their enemies considered them unkempt barbarians. The Vikings actually bathed more frequently than the other Europeans of the day. They took a dip at least once a week, preferably in a hot spring. They had bristled combs often made from the antlers of like red deer or some other animals they might have killed. This and other grooming objects were commonly found in Viking graves. And yes, comb-like devices have been found in other cultures around the world. The Vikings are often given credit for inventing the comb, at least as the Western world knows it today. Along with tweezers, razors, and even uh, ear spoons, it was just for scooping out earwax. A lot of these things turned up in burial sites, proving that these long-haired, bearded Viking warriors, they took their personal grooming very seriously. They're remembered for their shipbuilding, runes and symbols. Did you know that the Bluetooth symbol on your phone is a Viking rune? Even family names are still with us today, at least in some sense. Someone whose last name has the suffix son, that's kind of derived from Scandinavian culture. For example, from the great heathen army, Uba was Uba Ragnarsson, meaning Ragnar's son. Someone today might have the last name Wilson. A long time ago, that was just meaning Will's son. A lot of cultural impacts, but what about the life lessons, the mindset that they had? The Vikings had a deep thirst for exploration, whether it was to travel and seek new lands, or explore the limitations of their mind by seeking as much knowledge as they could. Hard physical training was an everyday part of life for them. The Vikings who accepted Christianity understood that for their new faith to survive, they needed to teach their new brothers and sisters in Christ how to fight when the fighting was necessary. And not just weapon fighting, but also their bodies. They had to be both strong and fast in order to carry out those raids that they were famous for. It's another mindset thing. Challenges. Challenges were something they sought. Challenges were just another obstacle for them to overcome. The mentality of backing down from a challenge would mean unworthiness to enter Odin's Hall in Valhalla. That same principle can still be applied today with personal growth. We don't grow unless we face challenges, win or lose. The point is to try. And if something is worth trying, try it. They had a sense of honoring the divine. They had an immense respect for their gods and lived the best lives they could to honor them to hopefully join them in Valhalla. We should do the same for heaven. The Viking toughness and mindset, in a sense, can be applied to the passage from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Vikings and meek. When you hear meek, you probably think passive and submissive, right? But that's actually not what biblical meekness actually is. To be meek more accurately means those who have the spirit of resentment under control or another way to look at it, and this is one that I've heard Dr. Peterson say, and I love this interpretation, those who have swords know how to use them, but still keep them sheathed. This means you should be capable of violence, but have the restraint to not act on it until absolutely necessary. That is what meek really means which I think the Vikings would have been able to appreciate. For them, they needed to be the best version of themselves when Ragnarok begins. It's close. The Njorns decreed it long ago. The great Fimbul winter is coming and will cover the earth in a great cold. The light and warmth of the sun will fail. Food and other resources are already becoming scarce. All morals and decency will fall to the wayside. Betrayals of friends, kin, and loves of husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, parents and their children. The betrayal from those we fought to keep safe. The pain. Heartache. Will be nigh unbearable. The giants of Jotunheim, the dead of Helheim, and the agents of fire from Muspelheim will pour forth against Midgard and Asgard. They will be led by many powerful beasts, the great wolf Fenrir, the world serpent Jorgenland, the fire giant Surt, the goddess Hel, but their leader is the traitor Loki. Their ultimate goal is not just the destruction of Midgard and Asgard, but of the world tree Yggdrasil. The bridge to Asgard will be shattered. And Eimdall will sound the call, alerting all of the gods that the time is near. They will convene in the Golden Hall of Valhalla, where the great heroes of old have been waiting, and seek the counsel of Odin and Mimir. With the bridge shattered, the defenders of Midgard cannot make it to Asgard. But the gods and the heroes of Valhalla will come to fight beside their children. 
the last survivors of Midgard will make their stand. Great warriors and shield maidens, calling to Odin, Frigg, Thor, Heimdall, to all of the Aesir and the Vanir, to not abandon them to die alone against the coming darkness. shields and swords of the humans of Midgard like a great wave. The sounds of steel, flesh, fire, screams, roars, and calls to bravery will ring out. The humans will not quit. They call to Odin and their ancestors desperately, not to forsake them. And just as all hope seems lost, a great light will pierce the moon. Odin and the other gods and heroes of Valhalla will descend from Asgard to join the humans. Odin will slay many Jotun with his spear Jungir, as will Thor with his mighty hammer Mjolnir. The Valkyries will fight and swoop down from the air and rescue many from the clutches of death. It seemed as though hope stood a chance. But Loki will have been waiting for this, for the gods to reveal themselves. He will alert Fenrir and Jormungandr that Odin and Thor are on the field. The great wolf and servant will charge forth to face their destined foes. Odin for a moment will hesitate upon seeing Fenrir, his end decreed by the Njorns to be in the wolf's jaws, but he looked around him and saw the assemblage of heroes and mustered the courage to face fate. He would fight for me, and it even seemed as though he might win, but fate is away. Fenrir devoured Odin. Grief, anger, and the spirit of justice would envelop the sons of Odin, though they would give their lives in the process. They would slay Fenrir. 
Frigg, the wife of Odin, and the goddess of life, will face hell. A poetic struggle of life and death. Both will win. Both will lose. Hell and Frigg will cease to be. Heimdall, the guardian of Asgard, will find the trickster Loki. He knows that Loki is more agile, but all he needs is one clean hit to put an end to his treachery. Loki will taunt Heimdall, moving in and out of striking range, looking for a weakness in Heimdall's armor. Loki would find no opening, but in his greed, would leave himself open for Heimdall to thrust his sword into Loki's gut, taking the trickster with him. Thor and Jormungandr were all that remained. Jormungandr's strikes were of such magnitude that a crater began to form around them. Thor delivered strike after strike against the serpent. After another missed attack from the snake, Thor would use all of his might to deliver the killing blow to Jormungandr. But the world serpent in the last act of defiance spewed his venom on Thor, sealing his fate. Thor would walk nine paces from the corpse of his foe before succumbing to death himself. After a time, when it became clear that the battle was over, two survivors, hidden away in a new tree, a man and a woman, named Osk and Embla, will come forth, and they will be greeted by a new god, and the world will start anew. My friend, I say this as much to myself as I do to you. In this life, you will experience things like the seasons. Joys will be found and form like the spring. It will blossom and bloom throughout the summer. You must cherish these joys while they last. The season of autumn will come, and the joys you cherish will begin to fade. And when winter comes, you must let them go, for it is their time. I know you will miss the days of spring and summer, when the bonds you made seemed like they would last. But remember that like the seasons, Spring always comes back, and new joys are waiting to be found.